Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Japan's economy gets a bad rap. And for most of the past 27 years, the so-called lost decades, that's largely been deserved. But don't let the past blind you to what's going on in Japan right now. It's still the world's third largest economy. And in case it escaped you, the stock market is a stone's throw from its highest level since the 90s. Japan's jobless rate is about half that of the United States. And corporate profits have never been better. And look at bank lending. It's growing the most since, again, the 1990s. Look, I know, I know, we've had false dawns before. I even believed in one myself in 1999 during the two years I spent editing economics for Bloomberg in Tokyo. So if things are looking up, why isn't Japan getting credit? Why does everything always have to be about China? Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Economics in New York. My guest co-host this week is Chris Anstey, a Managing Editor for Bloomberg in Tokyo and resident of that city for seven years. Chris, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Dan. And your experience with Japan predates your move there seven years ago. Well, that's right. I was uh, here uh, as a uh, teenager in the late 1980s. My dad was working here, uh, and I went to an international school. Uh, I also came back uh, after college and taught English uh, for a year before I uh, I went back to the United States and uh, spent the bulk of my year in the U.S. and U.K. Uh, and it's uh, it's been fascinating to see uh, Japan, uh, you know, the past seven years uh, compared with. Uh, the 80s. It does feel, though, doesn't it, like China just sucks all the oxygen out of the room when you have a conversation about Asian economics. And if Japan is discussed today, it's in the context of a long struggle with deflation and a shrinking population. And as we'll learn, that obscures what's been happening lately. But don't just take our word for it. Peter Tasker has been in and around Japan since the 1970s. He's a founding partner of Arcus Investments Limited, established in 1998. He also dabbles in Japanese detective fiction. Peter, great to have you. Good to be here. What's different this time? What is the popular narrative missing? Most of the indicators that I look at are showing... um, levels that we haven't seen since the the uh, mid-90s or even before. And um, if we look at, for example, the, uh, the Japanese labor market, which you touched on, uh, the job offer to applicants ratio has not been uh, this high since the early 1970s. So uh, even even though the uh, the rate of growth, the natural rate of growth, uh, has declined due to the uh, the population issue. 
we have a, a kind of high-pressure economy developing here. And uh, as a result, we're seeing a, a virtuous circle develop in which you've got more consumption, uh, and I, I think we will see more corporate investment um, and better uh, improvement in the, in the economy as a whole. Just the standard metrics that we look at are far better than anything we've seen. And this goes to, you know, even some of the sort of social mood that we, we look at. And as you, as you said, the two lost decades were a really dismal period for Japan. Uh, and one of the things, a uh, very sad indicator of that was the very large rise in the suicide rate, particularly after the uh, first banking crisis. Uh, in, in 1997, uh, we saw a significant rise, almost 50% in the suicide rate over the next five or six years. Uh, and it was uh, uh, concentrated on the sort of middle-aged male population, many of whom found themselves um, out of work or underemployed. Uh, well, over the past 10 years, that has gone right back down again. There's been a huge decline in the uh, in the suicide rate, it's gone right back down to where it was before that banking crisis. So there seems to be a, a sort of happier vibe socially, and that's no surprise when you see that there's a very high pre uh, proportion of the uh, population which is now employed. Uh, and I think that's an absolutely key metric: is that everybody who wants to work is working. You know, Peter, uh, like you, I uh, I really enjoy uh, looking at uh, the historical trend uh, of uh, of indicators. And uh, one great thing about uh, the Bloomberg is you can track some of these uh, way back to the 70s or 80s, or uh, in some cases even before. And uh, what really kind of caught me on to something changing in Japan was when I looked at indicators like nominal GDP. Which of course is uh, you know unadjusted for uh, for price changes. That's the actual yen uh, that's produced in the economy every year. Nominal GDP at a record again. Uh, you look at uh, again uh, employment. Uh, you look at uh, income uh, across the economy, uh, and uh, it's pretty striking. The past few years, the trajectory has been much better than it was. You know, a phrase we like to use at Bloomberg is size and scope. Uh, the size and scope uh, is uh, the highest in decades. But uh, why, Peter, do you think that, uh, you know, these headlines, you're obviously aware of this, um, you know, some uh, folks who follow Japan closely uh, are aware of this, but the world seems to have largely forgotten uh, about Japan. What do you think um, is the reason that people don't really recognize this story more widely? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is sort of long history of, of the relations and the image of Japan globally, going back to the war and then in the 1980s when it appeared that Japan was going to be the economic superpower of the uh, 21st century. And many very, very smart people bought into that and there was a, a huge flood of books about that and Michael Crichton's film, um, um, what was it called again? Rising Sun. Rising Sun uh, was uh, what was marked the sort of peak of that. 
Uh, and then after the uh, the bubble burst, it turned out to be a, a bubble economy and the foundations were built on sand. There was a sort of audible sigh, sigh of relief and a bit of um, schadenfreude, if you like, that uh, Japan was actually doing pretty badly. And uh, so the West could say, well, look at this. They're not doing it the way they should do, they're, and they're doing it their own way, and it's all going wrong. See, I told you so. I think you're just being diplomatic, Peter. Triumphalism is the term that comes to mind. Triumphalism, yes, indeed. So what what happened after that is that uh, Japan has recovered, uh, uh, I believe, but it's recovered in a sort of stealth fashion. And it's now um, neither a challenger nor a disaster. Um, it is what it is. Even so, I think that it's, uh, it, it's, it's uh, something that the rest of the world should pay a lot more attention to because many of the issues they're dealing with, particularly the aging economy, um, the need to bring more people into the labor force, as we know, the labor participation rate uh, in the U.S. is, is dismally low, uh, whereas Japan has been very successful not just in bringing the, 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 the actual sort of technical uh, uh, working population, which is 15 to 65, but also bringing many seniors into the labor force as well. So we have um, over 20% of the over 65s uh, in the labor force. Um, so there are many things that Japan is doing which we we could all learn from and uh, probably will need to go there uh, before too long because aging though we we present it as a uh, as a some kind of uh, disastrous demographic situation is in reality a kind of triumph because it means that we've extended people's lifespans and uh, Japan has the second largest second longest lifespan for uh, males and, and females, or second or third, it's all, it's always been there or thereabouts. So, um, what we what we need to do uh, in in most of the uh, developed countries is to recognise that people live longer. They should be economically active longer, and they should work longer. Uh, and Japan is is moved, um, I think, quite in quite a constructive way uh, in this direction. Uh, Europe hasn't moved that way at all. Uh, I think America is, is sort of in the middle, but uh, Japan is way is way ahead. It's interesting you mention Rising Sun. Both the book and the movie, they did seem to capture the zeitgeist of the moment, the sort of Japan as number one industrial complex. I wonder, though, you make me think, are we making the same mistake in the way the West views China now? that it's destined to be on top, it's destined to be the economic superpower of the 21st century, and some of the potential for problems, such as demographics, you know, they're just being swept under the carpet at the moment because it's the current mania. Well, that's a good question, Dan. And, um, I mean, obviously my experience in Japan is that never make predictions, especially about the future. And uh, uh, all those smart people... Um, who, who, who wrote that the 21st century was going to be ja uh, Japanese supremacy again, uh, got egg on their face very, very quickly. So we should, we should always challenge the assumptions, and we should always think uh, of all the different scenarios that are out there and realize that our ability to, 
to be certain about them is is, is very limited. And uh, I think you're you're right that if if you are sitting in uh, in Beijing uh, in, in Xi Jinping's seat, you would see a whole world of problems that you've got to face, and. Uh, uh, not easy to deal with. Having said that, of course, China has made fun- unbelievable progress in many areas, and uh, particularly in, in moving up the value-added chain in, in, in technology. And um, uh, so as a result of that, a country like Japan has um, moved out of many of the you know, consumer brand icons uh, which sell directly to the, the consumer that they were famous for in the 70s and 80s. Most of the Japanese um, high-tech we see these days, apart from in autos, uh, is in capital goods, which go into uh, somebody else's branded products. So I think that's that's a change in the industrial structure, which also means that Japan's less visible as, as a sort of brand owner than it was uh, going back 25, 30 years ago. But in fact... Uh, does it a huge amount of trade with China and a lot of intermediary goods and capital goods and key components go into, uh, you know, your iPhone or many of the other uh, key products of, of today. So, Peter, if um, uh, I, I like your uh, your term that uh, Japan is neither a challenger nor a disaster. Uh, so, if that's the case, what sort of opportunities uh, does this uh, new kind of stealth uh, dynamism uh, in Japan create for uh, investors and businesses outside Japan? Yeah, well, um, t- talking about financial um, investment. Um, one of the things that, that people find very hard to, to, to get their brains around is that a high-growth uh, economy does not uh, necessarily produce the best returns for investors. And there are a number of reasons for that, which I won't go into, but there's long studies, 100 years of stock market history have shown that, if anything, the, uh, the, 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 the correlation is the, other, is the other way around a bit. So... Um, we we sh- we don't need Japan to grow rapidly in order to be an okay investment destination. What we do require is uh, good value, good values, and good profitability from the companies. And I believe that we do have both those elements in place. Um, and uh, just to give you an example, uh, the, the Topics Index, uh, which is sort of the, the major index of, of the of the stock market here, equivalent to the S and P. When it um, was uh, peaking out uh, right at the start of this century with the IT bubble, the EPS on topics was about 25 yen a share. Right now, it's 110 yen a share, and it's expected to rise to about 130 yen over the next couple of years. So in other words, uh, there's been a huge improvement in profitability over that time. Now, the market itself is actually where it was then, though the the EPS on the market is four to five times higher. So obviously that's a much better investment environment in terms of of valuations and company profits. I think you also need a more stable um, macroeconomic environment. To some extent, the the, the policymakers have a role to play here. And being generally a more accommodative and uh, e- easier in in, in 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 the macro policy settings have led to more confidence uh, for companies 
and um, actually this um, sort of environment that we're seeing now, again, we're talking about small numbers here, but Japan has been growing well ahead of its natural rate of growth, which is simply productivity growth because the working population is not rising uh, year after year. Therefore, you are soaking up all the used capacity. And we're starting to see some wage rises, particularly in the part-timer space. They're not huge, but you're talking about 25 2.6% with a very lower inflation still. So a much, a much better environment. And for investors, I think we've got a more stable macro environment and we've got better profitability and valuations than we've seen for, I would say, since, probably since the 60s. You know, Peter, you mentioned the uh, the, the labor force uh, and running out of, uh, of of spare capacity there. One thing that I've started to uh, think about is, uh, you know, if you look at the past uh, couple of decades, uh, there were periodic uh, episodes of uh, a very a very strong exchange rate in Japan, uh, which really uh, kind of shook out uh, the exporters. Uh, it forced them to become more productive. Uh, it sent some of them uh, out of business. Uh, it sent many of them uh, pushing manufacturing and jobs overseas. Uh, and uh, arguably, it left uh, those that survived, the Toyotas and, and others, uh, in, in stronger shape. And I'm wondering if the labor shortages and the emergence of, uh, of labor cost pressures domestically will do the same thing uh, for the domestic economy. Economy, uh, that you will see a shakeout uh, with some not able to survive the increasing uh, costs uh, and others uh, left in stronger position uh, with more productive workforces. Yeah, I think you're right because uh, um, I, I think the you know the, this sort of tight labor market is is driven by two things. One is a, is, is sort of decent economic performance, but the other is the demographic. Uh, limitations. So what I think we'll see over the medium term is this uh, really forcing all kinds of shakeouts and uh, consolidation of industries. So I, you know, it, it, many industries in Japan have got a huge number of players in the industries and you don't have that situation. Many mature economies you would have uh, the top four or five companies that have an overwhelming share of that market. Uh, that's not really the case in Japan. You often have hundreds and hundreds of companies. I, I think we're going to see uh, over the next decades, in fact, a great deal of consolidation there and mergers, mergers and acquisitions as well. Um, we also see a great deal of uh, automation of uh, activities that uh, that are done by by people and there's a tremendous room for that particularly in the service sector uh, I would say particularly in things like the banking sector if you go to a branch of a bank in Japan you'll see that they're still uh, got a large number of personnel in there uh, despite all the you know the, the potential that we have these days for reducing that so I, I, I think what we're going to see is bigger companies emerge in many of the service sectors uh, which so far have been uh, very overpopulated company-wise. And we're going to see more innovation in terms of um, personnel reducing uh, technology, sort of robotization, if you like. Uh, we've just 
looking at one company which has got a 70% share in in small-scale sushi robots. I mean, this is perhaps one of the way things are going to go over, over many years to come. What does a sushi robot do, Peter? Well, it, it can't actually put the fish in, but it can make a nice sushi thing for you, and then you, you have to put the, uh, the fish in yourself. You need a bit of human skill to do that. But yes, it, 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 it rolls the sushi for you. But uh, again, I, I, I would say that these are all phenomenon which... If you look at the sort of overall growth rate, it will be average. Nothing much will change, but the quality of it will, will be much improved. Peter, before we close, let's talk a little bit about your other occupation, uh, writing detective fiction. And I understand this is based around an anti-hero called Mori. How has yeah. he navigated Japan's economy in the past <laughs> couple of decades? And what does he make of this optimism right now? Is he feeling it? He's um, been at the raw end of deflation, actually. Like many people in service industries, uh, he's found that uh, the, the kind of fees that are available for him for the work he does have gone down and made it very difficult to cover his costs. So though he's not really uh, uh, an, an economic uh, person, an economist, uh, yes, he's suffered from the, the lost decades. And, um, yeah, he, 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 the, other, the other thing about uh, Mori is, of course, the, um, I, the way I constructed him, he was basically a sort of 1960s guy or early 70s guy. So he's getting on a bit now. But, of course, in Japan, that is no barrier to uh, being cool and doing your stuff. Uh, so people carry on doing all kinds of things, whether it's climbing Everest or what, whatever else it may be, uh, well into their 70s and 80s. So um, I think that uh, Morius can still keep going uh, and uh, he, he can challenge the stereotypes of the problem of uh, demographics actually being instead an opportunity. What's your favourite detective novel ever? Favourite one ever? Well, of course, there are so many classics. Chandler is, is, is really wrote the book, but I'm very fond of Ed McBain, actually. Uh, his, his stuff is, is great. Do you like Philip Kerr's character, Bernie Gunther? Yes, 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 I do. I, I, do, I, do, I do like that, yes, and the more modern stuff, yes, that, that, that's good. Peter, it's been an absolute treat to have you here on this show and we hope you'll come back again my pleasure entirely well benchmark will be back next week and until then you can find us on the bloomberg terminal bloomberg.com our bloomberg app as well as apple podcasts pocket casts and stitcher while you're there take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show you can follow me on twitter at Moss underscore eco and Chris, you are at Anstey Asia, A N S T E Y Asia. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McKate, a shameless cynophile. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.